Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. You're here with your host, Auntie Vice, and today we have a kink educator, Boss Boar. He teaches in the Bay Area. He teaches about really cool stuff, fear play, uh, rough body play, all sorts of cool stuff. And he's here to talk about what he does, what we've learned, what he's learned from the community. And it's great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be on. I think this is my first first podcast about kink stuff and i've always wanted to do one so yeah thank you for having me that's fantastic yeah so you started teaching in the kink community and there are a lot of folks who've picked up teaching in different things but they have other lives what you know and this is not something most of us go to school for this is not something high school counselors say hey when you grow up you should be a kink educator so how did you start this i started teaching because at one of my first kink conventions, actually probably the first kink event that I went to, somebody talked about pressure points. And I'd been doing martial arts for 12 years at that point. And I realized, oh, I don't need to just do rope. I can use, I can bring in things from out, from my outside life and I can bring it all together and do terrible, terrible things to people with it. And a few years later, um, that was when I was in the Austin, Texas scene. When I came out to San Francisco after I was here for two, three years, I realized nobody did pressure points. And so I just sort of looked at it and I thought, here is something I really enjoy. It's a very niche kind of thing. and it's something that I think people would enjoy learning about. So I just saw that sort of opening and felt like it was an opportunity to share with the community. So you're right in with a a big thing that happens is a lot of people think kink is limited to rope or other types of bondage and impact play, right? Mm -hmm. And there's so much more. And you teach about a, a variety of things that are less common. So how did you get into exploring these these less common aspects of kink um, and things that aren't represented in in the wider media on it? I think just in regards to, um, I think you're referencing like the fear play and the interrogations and things like that, um, humiliation and degradation, all that just, it came about one from doing, sort of going back and doing some analysis of my fantasies. And sort of figuring out, all right, this fantasy is completely, completely out of the box and is not possible. What is it about this fantasy that really turns me on? And then it was also just looking at the scenes that I was doing and what, what components were there 
that weren't necessarily overt. So it was like, oh yeah, I'm doing this, you know, I'm doing knife play. And then realizing it's not, while I do love knives and I have a collection, it's not about the knife. It was about the fear reaction I was getting. So that's, that's what sort of brought me to exploring those different kinds of mental, you know, sadism aspects. And what is it about the fear aspect of it that that's the turn on? Because most people like to avoid being scared, right? We, we don't, and we, most folks don't seek out humiliation. Um, you and I are in the, the subset that is like, I'm like, oh yeah, call me all those dirty little <laughs> nasty things and <laughs> scare the shit out of me during a scene. And it's the hottest thing ever. And so how do you go about introducing partners to this because this is this is not it's like hey babe i want to put a knife up to your throat and call you nasty things because not everybody's like sounds like an afternoon to me how do you introduce people to it it's funny because i guess at this point i have a little bit of a reputation in the bay area scene so people when they engage with me find out either from me or or from others that i i like that kind of thing and i'm very out there with here are the things that i'm into so people who i talk to are already they're already curious um and it's it's something that particularly in regards to like fear play let's say that's something that i'm very upfront with people and say this is something i want in a scene we do i'm not really just a physical sadist so there's always even from the beginning a aspect of the emotional play um as far as i think one of the things is that so many people degradation humiliation it's almost sort of a starter point for them in in the fantasies they have so bringing it up isn't usually something like oh, here's this thing that's never occurred to you. It's more like, hey, remember years ago when you first started fantasizing about things and you had these little bits of humiliation? Want to play with that? So from the, I, I know it from the submissive side, right? And what turns me on. And, and fear and sex are very closely related for most people. But you come at it from from the dominant, from the top side. What's the exciting part about scaring somebody for you? Oh man. So I, I identify as a dominant. That's my little moniker thing or whatever on FetLife. And it's not that I feel like I need to have a submissive to, to fully realize who I am. It's just that all my kink, all my fetish boils down to power. And there is just something intensely powerful about somebody being afraid of you and the way that I like to do it I don't want them focused on whatever toy I have in hand I don't necessarily I I don't want them even with a knife I don't want them afraid of the knife I want them afraid of the crazy look in my eye and the way my hand is shaking a little bit and I so I want them afraid of me because that's just kind of Yes, I'm inducing this sort of, like you said, like people don't normally seek this out. This is an unpleasant sensation. Like, 
I am inducing this intensely unpleasant sensation in you just by just by standing here sometimes. And with fear, there's um there's got to be you, the the psychological dynamic, right? Most of us don't look at a paddle or a knife or anything and have that emotional reaction, mm -hmm. right? There's phobias, and I've I've talked to a number of doms who use like spiders and stuff. Which yes. for me, I have a very visceral reaction, and I'm like, I'm not even coming over to your house because you got tanks <laughs> full of tarantulas, and that's just. That's beyond me. Um, but there, there's that visceral reaction, and then there's the psychological stuff. So how, when you're working with a partner or you're teaching people how to work with fear play, how, how do you tap into that psychological space in a safe way? Because it has to start from a point of consent and negotiation mm -hmm. and some feeling of safety. So how do you balance that with scaring somebody during a scene? That is, that is definitely one thing I hit on in the class is that really – the fear boils down to trust. And one of the major points is that the container you create, it has to be very clear to the person to the bottom that the container you are creating, the scene, the space you are creating is safe, except maybe in the ways that the top is controlling. So, you know, knife play is an easy fallback one. It's like nothing is going to disrupt or distract the top or anything like that. The only thing is how much has the top made the bottom question their trustworthiness? So obviously the top knows that they are trustworthy and they're not going to stab the bottom. But it's all about creating that question. And it's sort of, like I said, that sort of wild look in your eyes. You know, you can go so far as to have, you know, there's an empty medication bottle on your counter in the bathroom. And you just casually mention to the bottom, oh, by the way, I'm off my meds today, but it should be fine. Um, I haven't tried that one yet, but I... I definitely want to. So yeah, it's it's all about that trust and yeah, it's it's that part of it is that cognitive dissonance of the bottom, yes, I trust you. But also I don't. So it is all about that that tightrope walk, that balancing act and that's another part of the fun of it. And with fear play and humiliation play, again, um, it's that, that relationship, it's that dynamic mm -hmm. that the top and the bottom have that's important to it. So one of the things that goes into maintaining that is aftercare. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people will talk about the importance of aftercare, but leave it nebulous as to what that is. You know, oh, you may need to be cuddled. You may need to be told everything's okay. And they leave it at that. But aftercare, especially with these more intense scenes, have to involve a lot more. Mm -hmm. So where do you start with negotiating and figuring out what somebody needs after something that's this intense? A big part of that, one, one thing about creating that container, all that, I talk about it in all my classes, is actually just bookending the scene. So really making it clear to the person when they are, you know, quote unquote, not safe and when they are safe from whatever thing you're doing. 
so that then you can switch into aftercare mode. And then I've got, I have a long negotiation template and it, um, it involves a lot of those questions about, you know, what do you need as far as aftercare? But also there's things about trauma triggers. But another thing is I talk about, you know, okay, I want to touch base with you because these are particularly humiliation, degradation, things like that. Like you can't just sort of be like, okay, I humiliated you and said that you were a dirty pig for the last two hours. I'm going to hug you for an hour and a half and then we're done. Like you've got to rebuild what's been kind of broken for lack of a better term. So it's, it is a much more involved process and it's always, it's so individual that it's hard to say, I do this, you know, this, this, and this, but it is just that maintaining communication for a longer period that uh, that really falls into my aftercare for the more intense stuff. Yeah, that rebuilding. Yeah, again, for it's because I participate in humiliation, degradation, fear play from the bottom side. It's not like you're broken in that the the dominant the top has done something that's irreversible mm-hmm. or, or you're mm-hmm. really fractured but it's that emotional side of it that takes a minute mm-hmm. to come back out of it and that that rebuilding that retouching base is important outside of a scene then how do you one of the things i've found at least in my own play is that it's that relation outside of the scene that really helps rebuild it mm-hmm. uh so for folks who are looking to do fear play, uh, accumulation, degradation, is this something you could do as pickup play? <sighs> fear play is an easier one, I would definitely say, because it's easier to just to be like, hey, you know, what sort of things scare you? Hey, that sounds interesting. It's, yeah, what what you engage in, you know, if you're just new to somebody letting them hold a knife to your throat might be outside of the comfort zone but there are other things you can do that are scary um humiliation and degradation it's actually something i'm running into i'm trying to develop a class but they're so individual that it's hard to just sort of sit down with somebody negotiate for 15 minutes and be like all right now i'm going to degrade you and it just ends up being you know somebody calling somebody else a dirty pig for two hours when the other person is like, oh, yeah, I love barnyard animals. <laughs> Pigs are smart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So humiliation and degradation, I I feel like don't fit, don't fit pickup play just because I know for me it takes so much negotiation and conversation just to learn about the person enough so that I know what humiliates and degrades them. It's not me projecting. Well, I think this should be humiliating. So fear play, I'd say yes. Humiliation, degradation, not so much. One of the reasons I bring this up is now, and a number of my guests have have brought this up, is there's this proliferation of people who call themselves dominants. And they'll say they're into humiliation, degradation, fear play. But what they are doing is they're not really familiar with it, and they're masking abuse as BDSM, Mm -hmm. right? And this is becoming – this is a big issue in our communities. Mm -hmm. And so 
how for for folks out there who are looking for these experiences, what are the some of the things you'd advise them to look for to screen out bad DOMs and find the good ones? Ooh, um, well, first one is just sort of that that kind of cop out answer of vet them. Like go to the go to the community, ask around about people, but that that only gets you so far, and sometimes it's not really an option. For me, red flags, it's a, it's a more nebulous concept, but it's just, do you feel like they are seeing you? You know, it talked about it with humiliation and degradation. It's such an individual thing. Is the person actually asking questions about what you find humiliating and degrading? Or is the person asking what you are afraid of? Because so much of, from what I've, from what I've seen, a lot of, abuse involves the just kind of they're pushing these ideas and taking out taking out concepts on a person for lack of a better way of putting it so feeling like they're actually seeing who the bottom is i think is another is another big one but i sort of go back to also you know how present are they in the local community other ways to screen it out so that's part of the problem is that it's such a such a challenge. I know that they've got the checklists online. I think that we've got we've got to have BDSM like, hey, this is not the way it's supposed to go. But so you've got your I know you've got things out there of um, whether or not they say, well, this is the way it's done. And I always just tell people, trust your gut. If something like don't if you're particularly if you're new and something feels off, don't listen to the person saying, oh no, this is the way it's done. Because you're probably right and you're not missing out on much if you don't do the thing. So long-winded answer. And we talk about red flags a lot. What would be green flags as a good partner to play with? Oh, green flags. They can talk about their limits with specificity and i know like as a top a red flag for me is oh yeah what are your limits what are what boundaries are we working with and they say oh no i don't have any just do whatever say oh this is a problem like like all right let me go get my cigar cutter and let's go to town on your fingers like this is you yeah so that's that's always a big one. And even somebody who's even a bottom that's talking to the top, like tops should have an idea of what sort of boundaries they're going into, which can be anything from I don't really like when people are super mean in a, you know, quote unquote, bratting way. Um, so that's that's always a green flag, obviously, being vetted well by other people in the community. Um other good green flags. I said that they know their boundaries. They're also able to communicate around what they want. Um, somebody who can be straightforward and say, this is what I want without feeling like they're scared of your response. Like just the straightforward, I want this thing. I'm looking for this thing. That is that is a good sign to me. That shows experience and clarity. So, yeah, that's that's a definite green sign, uh, green light, I could say, or green flag. When we talk a lot about 
bottoms needing aftercare and bottoms having limits. For you, where does the top come in? Can tops have limits? Do they need aftercare? I mean, as a top, if you've done a fear play scene or a degradation scene, is there something you need afterwards to make sure everything's okay? Or is it just focused on the bottom? Oh, there's top aftercare is totally a thing. I That is part of my negotiation document is I'm like, by the way, here are the things that I usually need afterward, or we, or we discuss it verbally in that, you know, for me, it's like cookies, um, depending on the scene kind of as I am, I am very, very far from being a service top, but I still like to know that the person had, you know, depending had a good time may not be the right terminology, but that they're feeling all right and that they feel like they got what they wanted out of the scene. I like to know that they don't think I'm just some horrific monster and go running to the hills. So, you know, they still think I'm a decent human being. So there are words of affirmation I need to hear. I like cuddling. I do think that it's kind of all right. See to see to the aftercare of the bottom first. But if the two of you have conflicting aftercare needs, I think that's a problem and something that needs to be worked out. Uh, usually I've never really run into that because who doesn't love cuddles? So, but I, I definitely think top aftercare needs to come into it because I know I get top drop really bad after intense scenes. So that's another reason that I like to do those check-ins afterward is also so I can get like I can get some affirmation. Yeah, I think we forget about that a lot, especially in the more intense scenes, because it's so focused on what's happening to the bottom mm -hmm. to the submissive. But yeah, I my dominant and I would engage in humiliation scenes and he needed to know that I didn't think he was a prick when he was done. Like, um, you know, because knowing that I still respected him and mm -hmm. all of that was important as knowing he still respected me. Yeah. Like, yeah, it, it goes both ways. And I think a lot of that gets lost in kind of the, the fluffier sides of things. You talk about the other thing is around negotiation and consent. And a lot of the consent models right now talk about enthusiastic yeses and looking forward to it. It gets complicated when you're doing fear and degradation and mm -hmm. humiliation, because it can be hard to say, I am enthusiastically looking forward to being terrified. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is kind of consent to a one type of stuff. How does consent change and, and what would signal true consent when what you're doing, people may have still have some apprehensions about or be afraid of, but want to do it? Mm -hmm. um, at that point, it's obviously more in-depth conversation. It's not just kind of, hey, do you want to do this? Yes, hooray. Um, it's picking up on that differentiation between, oh, I'm just doing this thing because I feel external pressure, like, oh, I don't want to disappoint you, so I'll do this thing. Or, oh, I want to show off for you, I'll do this thing. There's that definite vibe when somebody is like, I am, you know, 
reluctant to do this thing. It is really pushing my boundaries kind of thing, but I want to do that. So it's that's where that rapport and that conversation comes in and that you, if I don't feel like I can trust somebody, then even at that point, enthusiastic consent isn't going to matter. No, no, no. And you hit it's that rapport that, and I think that's one of the things that makes some of the more intense kink fight hookup culture, right? Because hookup culture, you don't even have to know the person's name, anything like, you know, it's more like doing an oil change, like maintenance. Okay, cool. I'm done. And you can go and we don't need to touch base again. Mm -hmm. Um, And this, this really fights it. So for people who start exploring this side of them, is it for people, is it, do you find people are doing this because they're looking for more of a relationship and, and more engagement with a partner than just, you know, kind of a one-off fun kink scene? I have done like the style of interrogation I do is very intense. It digs really deep into a person's psyche, but it's the same thing with humiliation, all of that. I, I have done one-off scenes for that, but it's like you talked about with relation, with relationships. I, in that, like I bring up occasionally the, uh, the long negotiation template is that I straight up say, play like this is very connecting what basically we have a conversation about what your relationship intentions are like are you looking for a to create a ds dynamic between us through this scene or to deepen one like i need to know that and you need to know that i'm just looking for sort of a one-off intense scene or just play partners so i think they're awesome for deepening relationships they're also dangerous for deepening relationships if they're not a relationship you necessarily want to deepen. So I think that, yeah, that relationship conversation, as awkward as it may be, needs to occur before you start diving deep into this stuff. Because it's kind of like that, uh, there's that study where they, on the bridge, um, yeah, I figured you'd know that one where, yeah, it's, it's, they had a sturdy bridge and the people and the subjects didn't really think that the person was attracted to them. And then they had this scary bridge and they were like, oh yeah, this person was totally attracted to me. Like just the, it's the trauma bonding for lack of a better way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something that especially newer players miss when they're, getting into this more intense play is when you engage in this type of intense play, there's a bond that occurs. And even if it's, it's not really a deep bond, you, it's a different type of connection to a person mm-hmm. after you've gone through something like this. So for newer players, how do you, how do they prep to, to do this and be able to distinguish between these were feelings generated by an intense scene versus I am deeply in love with this dominant and now will serve him till the end of my days. Ooh. That is a very good and interesting question. How do you differentiate? I mean, part of that is looking at how did you feel about the person beforehand? Huh? And my, my sort of first reaction is that they're 
there's not necessarily a big difference between the two because so much of developing relationships, so much of um, falling in love with the person, whatever, is about intimacy, vulnerability. And that's part of why I do scenes like this is that both sides are being incredibly intimate and vulnerable. And that's the danger of them as well, is that you are, you could say, falsely accelerating the intimacy process. It's like you, you don't really know this person, but now you've been intensely vulnerable in a certain way. So I guess what I'd say is the best thing is to look outside of the kink. Look outside and see, all right, what do I actually know about this person? So that's that's the closest I can get because yeah, that's a that is a really good question. The most I can liken it to is like transference with with that happens with psych, psychologist and therapist mm-hmm. is you're in this intensely personal relationship, getting vulnerable within this very safe container of therapy, and those emotions can develop on both the therapist and the client's side but they're not appropriate and it doesn't have anything to do outside of it. But, and I think the same thing happens in intense kink situations Mm -hmm. is you have this intense experience. And so then it gets hard to work through. Am I really in love with this person or was it just, I finally got to be myself for two hours. Right. Exactly. Yeah. In doing this, what have you learned about yourself? Oh man. I mean, the big thing that I say just about my my delving into the kink world is that it helped me integrate who I am into one whole individual. Because coming up, I always I always had these kind of dark inclinations, and. It was always like, oh, those are these dark, this is, this is the dark passenger or whatever. This is this dark thing inside of me, but it's not me. I'm a good person who only wants to help people. And traveling into kink helped me realize without judgment that this is a part of who I am. And having partners that are that said you know no no i want you to humiliate the hell out of me like oh i can do this in a way that's okay so it just became a facet of who i am and now i can sort of move ahead with pushing pushing my boundaries to find out more about who i am Because it's always kind of seeing, all right, I was socialized to never say to, you know, well, I grew up, I grew up with, you know, we're not angry, we're just disappointed. And Stefanos and Shay had an amazing edge play class where they taught, where they used disappointment as a threat. And it blew my mind. I was like, I, it never occurred to me to use that word. So now it's, like okay i can push that boundary i can tell somebody you disappointed me well someday i can i'm still working on that one (laughs) um 
I, yeah, I I grew up in the same type of family, and just the thought of a dominant telling me I'm disappointed in you is more crushing than I think anything they could, else they could tell me. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, if you've grown up with that, the the like I can feel everything going. Oh my god, I'm disappointed in <laughs> Dom. Like, I am the worst person in the world. Yep. like that would break me. That yeah. would break me. <laughs> yeah. So you talk about how this has allowed you to delve deeper in and kind of assimilate these these dark desires in a, into a healthy way. And we had Mir Green on the show from Wicked Grounds, and mm-hmm. they talk about developing kind of this iron core. And once you connect that, um, at least in, in their experience, then it empowers you in multiple areas of your life. Like once you've connected to that that pleasure, iron, I'm going to be who I am and I'm fully integrated, mm-hmm. it then flows out of you in different ways. Was that your experience with it? It did. It did allow me, particularly sort of seeing my power fetish and everything, um, along with a great therapist, helped me realize where power comes in throughout life. It helped me realize, okay, I really get off on having my boot on somebody's chest and saying terrible things to them because it makes me feel powerful. How does that interaction, you know, with my boss say, okay. And then it's the concept of how much power am I giving this person? Am I just sort of, oh, they're hierarchically higher than me, which just means they have power. But being able, having experienced, you know, this other power over somebody, I can sort of look at it and take back the power that I want and just realize, no, this is an exchange. This is not, this is not power. So it did, it did help me view life through a different lens. Yeah, I I think for folks who really get into this, you do have to understand power in multiple facets. Oh, yeah. And it it really does change the view, way you view things at work. I know for me, working in politics, it was all power dynamics, mm-hmm. everything. And <laughs> what really pissed me off is when it was non-consensual power oh. dynamics. And I think that's. I think that's one of the hard things about being a kinkster is as you start understanding when you can consensually and non-consensually exchange power, all of a sudden, certain things at work become real infuriating. Yes. Yeah. And that was talking about sort of seeing power dynamics also as I've become, I like to think progressively more socially aware. It's sort of, all right, how are the power dynamics, how are societal power dynamics working in this? Like, what what do I need to be aware of as, like, how is my privilege influencing this person's capacity to say no? Just, just all that kind of stuff. And I'm sure, yeah, the power dynamics, I mean, there's, there's social justice related power dynamics at my job. I can't imagine it like with politics, how, how that, what sort of messy, messy world that must've been. (laughs) Yeah. And you, you, so you touch on, understanding societal power dynamics when you play with a partner do you discuss those things if there's racial differences gender differences and how those influence your negotiations or are you just still is it kind of consistent between people regardless of race gender sexuality all of that when you negotiate 
Um, with my negotiations, it's I don't I don't explicitly discuss. Okay, here's here's what our here's what our you know societal power dynamics are. How is this influencing things? It's more that I do my best to play with people that I trust are aware of those, and I do everything I can to minimize what I I may cis white male. I have a lot of privileges and a lot of societal power, for lack of a better way of putting it. And so I do things like negotiate in safe spaces, make sure that I am, I have a lot of distance between me and the person. Um, I do a written questionnaire that I send to the person because I don't want to be there while they're answering it. So I do, I try to remain mindful of things that, as far as I'm aware, influence, but actually thinking about it, yeah, I, I think I might add that to the questionnaire of like, what, yeah, what, what societal power dynamics are in play here and what can we do to minimize them unless we want to play with them, in which case that's a different thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you're both on the same page and you're playing with an aspect of that, that can be very empowering for both sides, mm-hmm. um, I think. I love the fact that you have somebody go through the, the negotiation form without you being there because anybody who's been a long-term player understands that when you're present with another person, there's a different dynamic. There's mm-hmm. a different pressure. And I think that's a great piece of advice for folks as they're they're negotiating is that You've got to let your partner kind of go through this on their own without you being there. Because even if you're the submissive, it's going to change that dynamic and it's going to change how they're thinking about those answers. So to remove that is a a fantastic idea. Yeah, it's actually, I was just going to say, it's actually how I, many people disagree with me, but it's kind of how I go into relationship discussions. Like when I'm just first date, second date with somebody, it's that conversation of, here are my relationship wants. It's the same thing with play. It's here are my play wants. Do we overlap? So it's like, what are, what are these things do you want to do? Do you want to do? Not do you want to do with me specifically, but do you want to do? And then we see if it overlaps because the with you, the with me, can dramatically change things. If somebody's got a huge crush on you and they're thinking about that, that's going to alter their answers. Exactly. Exactly. You had a really interesting post on your, your FetLife page and uh, around responsibility and owning up to consent violations and harm in the community. And this has come up so much in the last four or five years mm-hmm. is where educators and people who are prominent in the community, which gives you a certain level of power, right? If you're mm-hmm. out there all the time, people know who you are, that gives you a certain level of power dynamics. And there's been quite a few educators who have had something go awry either in a class or a scene and everybody responds differently. I liked your approach to it. So did you want to weigh in on, especially as somebody who is an educator in the scene, what are our, our responsibilities as prominent figures to own up when we've, we've made a mistake? I think, I mean, I think it falls with 
not just educators and community leaders, but with everybody is that if you make a mistake, own up to it. You have to say, I made a mistake. And even in situations where it's where the the top may have felt like they didn't do anything wrong, the fact is that the bottom was harmed. So you need to own up to that. Like something went wrong, whether or not you feel like it was your fault or not. And fault is a whole big issue within it. But yeah, owning up to it is is really the biggest part. Um, and being an example of how to go about it, engage in the restorative justice process. Um, find out what the the harmed individuals needs are as much as you can and do that self-work even if you feel like you didn't do anything wrong something something went awry figure out what part of you contributed to that and then there's all sorts of stuff about i know i've run into it with um as far as just sort of presenter community leader responsibilities is the vetting process and and actually as a as a party host one thing that i remain very aware of is like who you associate with you are now vetting and you are a respected individual so whether or not you know somebody's a broken stare but they're your friend and you know you wouldn't recommend them but the fact that you're standing there talking to them knowing that they're problematic somebody sees you with them and knows oh well this person who is trustworthy in the scene is talking to this other person they must be trustworthy as well so there's just that extra level of awareness of yeah that that power that kind of vetting that is just by association that's one of my pet peeves can you can you come back? So if you, you're in one of these leadership positions or, or an educator and there's a very public event where something goes awry and this happens more often, I think, than we talk about, is there a way to come back from that and come and regain community trust or is it one strike and you're out? I mean, where do you think we need to fall on this? I think you can. But there's a difference between something went awry in a scene or in a relationship what whatever whatever the problem was something you know something bad happened a even a consent violation occurred i think there's a big difference between this bad thing happened i am engaging in the process i'm working on myself i'm doing what i can i'll come back in two, three, however many years. Um, mm -hmm. There's a difference between that and, okay, this person just posted on FetLife that my, that their consent was violated. Five other people have come forward. It's like, that's, that one would take some pretty extraordinary efforts to say, even, hey, you're cool coming back into the scene. Nevertheless, yes, we will we will allow you any any modicum of power within our community. 
So I think I, I do think there's a way of coming back. I don't think fully saying, no, you are, you are done, done, mm-hmm. but it all depends on how the person handles it. And I think you also tapped in the scale, right? The longer you play, the more extreme types of things you engage in, the more likely you are to trip over somebody's boundary, to have something mm-hmm. go amiss. And those still, you still need to own it um, and work through it. But it's different if that happens, three, four, five people are coming forward and saying the same type of thing happened with mm-hmm. me, and you've done nothing to address it. Yes. And I think a big part of that comes from if something I don't, I also don't play with people that I feel like I can't communicate with, that I don't Mm -hmm. trust to communicate with me. So if you have done something that has harmed your play partner, but they don't feel like they can tell you that it happened, you've now made two mistakes. You harmed a person and created an unsafe container afterward. So, yeah, I feel like, so yes, the the problem is compounded if, yeah, you've got multiple events because realistically you should have created a, a space for the person where they feel like they can say, yeah, you fucked up. Mm-hmm. You talk about it coming from the top doing harm. Can bottoms do harm? Can submissives do harm in the same? I would definitely say yes. There's always the concept of accidentally doing harm. I talk about in my classes the whole landmine theory. A bottom may say something, do something that just sets off the top in some way, triggers some sort of past emotional trauma. So there's there's accidental harm which is sort of different, but I do think it is possible. Um, I've never really had it happen, but like in scene, you know, if you're doing a more conflict oriented sort of humiliation scene, it may be, or in anything, it may be that the bottom, yeah, oversteps. Or maybe afterward, not taking care, you know, what, whatever it is. So I definitely think it's possible for a bottom to cause harm. Yeah, I, I would agree. I do. It hasn't happened to me personally yet, but I do know a number of instances where bottoms have, have violated the parameters of consent of what they were supposed to do or just failed to disclose their limits, their boundaries. And then mm. when they were crossed, instead topping, talking to their, their top, their dominant, they blow it up on FET. Mm. Right. All of a sudden you get this huge FET life post of how this guy is such a dick or whatever. And what it boils down to is the bottom didn't disclose these boundaries and didn't talk to them at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I've seen that one too many times to, to have much sympathy when, when people don't talk to their partners, mm-hmm. because as bad as it may have been, you have to talk. Yeah. Right? And that can get real uncomfortable. Yes. Which I hate to say it, but as an emotional sadist, sometimes that discomfort hearing somebody, you know, talk about particularly their wants, during negotiation can be a little fun but as far as yeah when it comes to their limits their boundaries um i am very much a i never remember which one's inclusive which one's exclusive but it's sort of all right here's here's our negotiation here are the things we are doing 
and that's it. I want to know everything to do with these things that we are engaging in. And that's, and that's it. Like, I'm not stepping outside of that. I'm not making associations of, well, if this thing, then also this thing. So I think that that's one thing that can be done. But yeah, there's only, and that gets down to trusting your bottom or your top's capacity to communicate. Because mm-hmm. you kind of, I feel like, yeah, you you didn't find out that the person wasn't able to communicate. Like you, you, you didn't pick up on that. So not saying it's their fault, but it is something that they didn't do. Well, and you've got to create a safe container for the top too, right? Mm-hmm. Cause you're playing with some pretty dark stuff mm-hmm. and tops have to feel as safe in that as the bottoms do. What is one scene you haven't done yet or one type of play you haven't done yet that you're dying to do? Oh, Capture and takedown, like chasing somebody through the woods, but making sure that it's more than just like, okay, who's got the better cardio? Um, it being much more about the terror that somebody feels running through or trying to run through a forest at night while one or more monsters are chasing them with whatever terrible thing they either know is going to happen at the end or it's left to their imagination that something terrible is going to happen at the end. So that's a big one, but I do have to mention that I got to work on my cardio before that. (laughs) It's the only reason to train for a 5K. (laughs) Exactly. Chasing perversion. That's the only reason. And then... Group humiliation. I've actually not really engaged in like doing a scene about humiliating somebody really heavily with a dedicated audience. I've done it like at the Citadel, rest in peace. I've done it where people were watching, but with a more proactive audience, that's also something really hot that I want to do. We may need to talk about party planning after this because <laughs> those are on my bucket list and I have a 15-acre parcel I'm dying to use Ooh. for for capture. <laughs> yep. I, those could be fun. So if our readers want to find you, where should they go? They can find me at com. That's B-O-S-S-B-O-A-R. And then it's also bossboar on FET. And my email address is IamBossBoar at gmail.com. BossBoar at gmail.com was already taken, which I was like, who takes that? Um, And besides that, I'm working on getting my fear play class up and running through uh, Blackthorn. So I recommend joining the, which is actually a is a picture from Blackthorn, well, from Sacred Muse, um, is my background. So I highly recommend if you're in the Bay Area, checking them out. Um, but yeah, yeah, working on getting my fear play class going through them. Excellent. We'll have all of those links up for our, our listeners to find them. I will second uh, getting in touch with Blackthorn. I love them. I've worked with them. I teach with them. And they have a great location. 
Um, so yes, yeah, so thank you, mm-hmm. thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you. This was a this was a lot of fun. This is your anti-vice. If you're looking for some great sex toys, check out thesexshed.com this week and use code REBECCA10 for 10% off any purchases. If you're looking for books and gear, Wicked Grounds is now offering personal shoppers on Wednesday. Contact wickedgrounds.com and work with somebody to find the things that best fit you. Finally, Check out loveletterstounicorn.com this week. I'm working with a couple of academics on sexuality research. Please consider participating. Thank you. And now, a moment of gratitude. What am I currently grateful for? I am grateful for gaining some new hope and direction in life. I've got some things that I'm working on to be able to live life more in line with my passions and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just sort of my, my maxims that I live by. What about you? What are you grateful for? That I one that I'm healthy. Um, I was very sick for a long time, mm. um, and two that I finally got to do a career that I can be my full self in. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.